0: Hey Climbers, welcome back to Climb by VSC, a weekly show about building and scaling startups in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jay Kapoor, general partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week I, or a member of our VSC team, will speak with a pioneer in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've all heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories of purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. As always, I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now let's climb. Tim
1: Deshaunt is a senior climate reporter at TechCrunch, and founder and editor at Futureproof, a publication covering climate and energy. Futureproof helps you make eco-friendly decisions when it comes to the stuff you buy, with the goal of helping you to reduce your carbon footprint, one purchase at a time. Tim is also a lecturer at MIT's graduate program in science, and has written for Wired, the Chicago Tribune, and Nova Next, among others. Tim, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks, Rick. Good to be here.
1: Yeah, you know we've had an opportunity to work together in your role at TechCrunch, but I'd love for our audience to learn a little bit about you. Uh, You have an interesting life that crosses journalism, academia, and community building. Can you share more about your journey and the common threads across your work?
2: Yeah, it was, um, to be honest, not a very direct path, which I think a lot of people would understand. I started out wanting to uh, be a professor. Uh, I loved environmental science, um, thinking about ecology and big systems and stuff like that, uh, and figured I would do that and be able to kind of write on the side. Um, But a few years into grad school, I realized that my true passion was in journalism uh, and started to think more seriously about that. So then when I finished my degree, uh, I decided to switch kind of whole hog into journalism um, and went from there. So uh, I had a number of other jobs, of course, before I landed at TechCrunch, but I've been thinking about climate and energy uh, and the environment in particular for, you know, almost 20 years now.
1: Where did you go to school for? Did you study journalism ultimately at school?
2: I actually did not. So I went to St. Olive College for undergraduate uh, and studied environmental science and English. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wanted to kind of like do both as long as I could uh, and manage to at least carry it through my undergraduate career. Uh, And then I made that switch to focusing on academia and uh, environmental science in grad school. So I went to UC Berkeley. I did my Ph.D. there studying the oak woodlands in the California Bay area, trying to look at how urbanism in particular was affecting uh, the patterns that we saw on the landscape uh, as a result of deforestation. And then the kind of the gradual grow back as people planted maybe oak trees in their yards and things like that. Um, And then I also looked a little bit at how the physiology of the trees changed over time. Um, but as I did that, um, you know, I took a class at the journalism school at UC Berkeley um, and realized that really that was where kind of things were heading for me. Um, I really enjoyed the science, but I really loved being able to explore the topics and talk to other people and see what they were doing and then share those stories with uh, the general public. So uh, I did that. I also wrote for the Berkeley Science Review, which is like a grad student run, run um, magazine on campus and then uh, did a Triple mass media fellowship with the Chicago Tribune. And that was really kind of my trial by fire in journalism. So I spent two and a half months in the newsroom and did it all, it was a great summer.
1: Yeah, all right, let's 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 dive a little bit deeper into the, the journalism aspects there. So climate-related journalism can cover a wide swath at this point. What excites you the most about climate coverage?
2: Yeah, I think at this point, climate coverage is a great place to be. and is exciting for me because it feels like we're finally making progress. Um, For a long time, it was really kind of taking people through the basics of climate change, uh, thinking about how do we explain the latest IPCC report, uh, you know, really the basics um, when it came down to it, like what's been happening, you know, over the last several decades, what's the future going to look like? Um, And to be honest, it was a little bit depressing at times thinking about that kind of stuff. Um, That's not to say that uh, the outlook's any better these days, Um, but what I will say is that for the most part, people seem to accept and understand the very basic science of climate change. So we're able to move on and start talking about solutions and ways that we're going to address the issue.
1: So, Tim, let's dive more broadly into your coverage. What makes a story particularly compelling for you? What do you look for uh, before diving in or researching a piece?
2: Yeah. I, you know, one of the things I do is I look for a uh, fresh take on the topic, right? That might seem like a pretty stack and, stock and standard answer. Um, but I mean, that's really true. If, if it's a story that hasn't been told before, if it's a technology I haven't seen, uh, if it's an angle that appears new, that's that's always something I'm looking for. Um, another thing I like to do is, you know, is there a story you know that could be kind of like a, a news piece or something that lets me tell a larger story? Um, So one example of this was uh, in the fall, you know, I'd been thinking a lot about fusion for a while and I'd been thinking about a fresh way to cover it. There'd been a lot that had already been said about fusion over the years, uh, much of which was focused on the delays uh, that it kind of racked up at ITER, the International Experimental Reactor, um, you know, and how fusion always seemed to be 20, 30 years into the future and kind of like would it ever actually happen. Um, But in the last five years, I'd seen a lot more activity in the fusion space. Um, There are a lot more startups, Uh, you know, obviously scientists that have been working on it were more confident in bringing their work out of the lab and putting it in front of investors and investors at the same time also seemed to be more receptive. And so it seemed like there was something happening there. And so as I was thinking about it, it kind of reminded me of the theory of punctuated equilibrium, which is kind of one explanation for why the species we see on earth are what they are. Uh, And basically what it boils down to is you get these periods of like explosive growth in the number, you know, radiate number of species that happen. And and it could be because, uh, you know, events kind of like come together to not necessarily conspire, but like create the conditions that, that caused this, you know, maybe an asteroid or um, a sea level rise or a mountain range rising, something like that. Um, and as I started digging into it um, in fusion, it, it turned out that there was uh, research done as a, how it applies to kind of the business and technology worlds by uh, Daniel Leventhal uh, at the Wharton School. And what he said is that, yes, this theory does apply and that you can end up looking at something like fusion and saying, yeah, we're seeing a lot of these same sort of conditions that you might expect in a punctuated environment, equilibrium environment. Um, and in, in the case of fusion, what we're looking at is there is a rapid advancement in um, uh, semiconductors. So obviously, chips have gotten exponentially faster uh, thanks to you know the adherence, or at least the kind of following of Moore's law that the semiconductor manufacturers have been able to follow. Uh, And then along with that, that's enabled kind of the resurgence in artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, Fusion in particular is well suited to machine learning. Um, You know, fusion is basically like trying to contain these really unstable hot plasmas. Um, And in order to do that, there's numerous, numerous knobs essentially that scientists and engineers can turn. And, you know, turning them one at a time to kind of create an experimental condition is really challenging. Humans would be very slow at it, whereas this is something that computers and machine learning excels at. Um, so that allowed them to make pretty rapid progress in recent years. And then the third thing that helped is this rapid development of high temperature superconductors. Now, high temperature here is all relative. We're still talking about things that are, you know, kind of cryogenically frozen uh, to keep them cold enough to maintain those superconducting conditions. Well, what that meant was that suddenly you had magnets that didn't require as much energy to cool and thus the power plant didn't require as much energy to run, which uh, you know makes fusion power much more realistic if you have much lower overhead. Um, and so all of those things didn't necessarily happen at the same time independent of each other. There were certainly reinforcements happening between them. Um, But because of that, then you started to see fusion take greater and greater strides and investors started matching that with more investment dollars. Uh, And then as we saw uh, from the National Ignition Facility in December, we finally got to the point where we were able to kind of achieve ignition, as they call it, which was uh, net positive fusion power. So a big hurdle kind of was crossed uh, and and suddenly fusion seems a lot more realistic.
1: All right, Tim, I'm going to ask you to break out your crystal ball here. I'm not going to hold you to it, but um, this idea of punctuated equilibrium. Where what do you think might be the next kind of technology or the or the next thing that has that um, you know special spark and that maybe this time next year everyone is talking about?
2: Yeah, I think we're going to start to see um, continued advancement in. Batteries, in particular, I think you're starting to see a lot more unique approaches on how we design, manufacture, and then ultimately implement batteries. Um, so, for example, uh, there was a company, Chemix, that recently raised around, uh, and they use artificial intelligence to design batteries. Um, a lot, you know. A lot of major companies are doing this. Uh, there's kind of the latest example where they're literally just focusing in on using AI in the design process, and then they're gonna hand off the designs to somebody else to manufacture. I think as more companies start doing that kind of thing, you're gonna to start to see some of the similar advances in battery technology as we've seen in semiconductors. Now, it's not gonna be quite as exponential um, as we've seen in semiconductors, uh, because we're not talking about a shrinking of a process. We're talking about tweaks in chemistry. So the advances here when we're talking big advances around the order of like 20 30% as opposed to a doubling but those you know compound over time and so if we can get really significant advances in battery design and manufacturing in a few years i think we're going to start to see uh, batteries and electric motors kind of combine to change sectors of the economy that i don't think we've even imagined today you know one thing i like to think about it's kind of ridiculous but like know, the little hoverboard things that were all the rage several years ago, right? Like that wouldn't have been even imaginable 20 years ago because we just simply didn't have the battery or um, electronics or the motor technology to make it happen.
1: You've got us excited about looking forward. Let's look back for a second. What's a recent story or development you covered that really surprised you or has stayed with you since you wrote about it? Yeah,
2: one of them uh, that's actually fairly recent is an Irish nonprofit actually called Energy Cloud, uh, which came out of um, a, a startup founder. Basically, um, he had a comp- he has a company currently that makes uh, kind of smart devices that hook up to um, either your hot water heater or uh, thermostat. So similar to Nest, where it's controlling some of the energy that's flowing through your house. Um, And so he was really well-versed in this world and kind of connecting to uh, the electrical grid and thinking about, um, you know, how does energy come in and leave the home? How do you manage it? Um, And also thinking about the the promise of the smart grid that's always kind of been on the horizon. And uh, essentially what he did is he uh, took inspiration from another Irish nonprofit called Food Cloud. And what they do is they take waste food and they give it to people in need. And he was saying, well, we can do the same thing with energy. And so he kind of, rather than just try to start this from scratch and kind of work on the problem himself, he brought a bunch of people and stakeholders into the same room. Um, the people who run the wind farms in Ireland, uh, Ireland's a very windy place, obviously. And so they have anywhere from like 12 to 14% wasted wind every year. Um, And he was like, well, what if we could put that to use? And then he went and found uh, a housing nonprofit and said, well, would your residents, would your tenants essentially be, you know, happy to use this? And they're like, well, yes, of course. Uh, And then they went to the grid provider and said, is there a way that we can make this work? You know, we want you on our team. And I thought it was an interesting case of rather than building a solution whole hog and releasing it to the market he went and kind of got all of the different parties in the room and tried to sort things out within the framework that already existed. And in the process, he's kind of in a way proving, this group, not just him, this group is proving how a smart grid might work within the framework of existing regulations so that you don't necessarily have to kind of completely rebuild the whole regulatory process around the electrical grid, which is very dense and arcane, that maybe there's a way that you can make it work, you know, within those bounds. Uh, and I thought it was a, an interesting case of the nonprofit world potentially informing the startup world. Usually we kind of think about it the other way around, but I thought this was a nice uh, sort of cyclical process. Um, and I don't know if you want to get into another one. I have another one, of course, at the top of my head, too.
1: OK, sure. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah. So ahead. along the lines of batteries, um, I have been covering this company, Rnext to Energy, for a while. Uh, they're a startup based in Michigan. Um, and their whole approach is to take two different uh, chemistries, basically two different types of batteries, put them in the same pack, and let, uh, basically, electronics balance which one's going to be used at which time. Uh, and that essentially allows them to take batteries with very different um, strengths and weaknesses um, so one of which is very durable, can be used and charged every single day, um, but is maybe a little bit heavier, but inexpensive. And pair it with a more esoteric, fragile battery type that maybe doesn't last quite you know through as many charge cycles, but could kind of serve to be that reserve, uh, so that if you need to drive you know 500 miles, you can tap into that, and then on your daily driving, you just tap into the one that's durable and can be used all the time. Um, and I thought that was a nice uh, example of kind of some of those, some of those, I guess, different ways of thinking about batteries and how as battery uh, technology becomes more advanced and kind of radiates and diversifies, that you're going to start to see some of these unique solutions that come in that we wouldn't have imagined five, 10 years ago.
1: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times when you talk about technology in different uh, industries and verticals it can be um, solutions in search of a problem but the you know in general and the two ones you've mentioned here really are i think solutions for problems right they are they are very much taking what 's out there and saying how can we use technology to solve that existing problem and I think that's always you know kind of i don't know it's Hopeful and, and optimistic yes. to see that people are doing those things, and, it, and that it can have that that real impact rather than just you know let's find a new way to you know buy clothes or something like that. Uh, right. This is, this is really kind of hitting on something that has a deeper impact. How has the discourse around sustainability changed from the time when you began uh, writing about this topic? I know you've been in this in this space for a while now. So what have you seen change around? Uh, sustainability as it relates to your coverage and, and how things are being talked about.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's changed significantly, right? Um, if you were to look at this space 20 years ago, it had a different flavor to it. Um, this was in the run up to kind of the clean tech boom that happened at the you know late 2000s. Um, and people were, I think, optimistic at the time and dedicated to it. And you could start to see it creep into the mainstream. Um, but there also wasn't this, um, I guess commitment to it. Um, it was kind of like a nice to have, it was a benefit. Um, and, you know, and there was still some, I, I would say it was not a, a complete embrace of the sorts of technologies and approaches that we're seeing today. So there was still talk of natural gas as a bridge fuel, uh, you know, cogeneration, things like that. And I think over time, and as the, uh, as the, know the climate crisis has kind of like become more front and center in people's lives i think you've started to see realization for what actually needs to happen um and as a result i think the focus and coverage has shifted i think that the solutions that are being presented have shifted you know you're not talking about well maybe we can kind of keep fossil fuels going for a little bit longer people are talking about a very serious end date to some of those uh, and thinking about how we can make direct replacements, um, not only in like everyday life, right? It's actually, I wouldn't say inexpensive, but if you have the funds these days, uh, it's not uh, it's not totally impossible to decarbonize large portions of your life, right? Um, but then of course, there are still some things that is very hard to decarbonize, right? Um, air travel, uh, cement, uh, steel making, things like that. And where I think it differs now is before we were looking for low carbon ways to do it. Now we're looking for completely carbon free ways to do it, or in some cases, even carbon negative ways to accomplish those. Um, and they're not ready yet, but you're starting to see founders, investors and regulators look at it uh, through a very different lens than they would have you know, 10, 15 years ago. Even. Yeah.
1: So great segue. I was just going to ask you. Uh, what are some of the most innovative trends you've seen in the carbon market?
2: Yeah, um, I think there are some interesting things thinking about how we can remove carbon from the atmosphere. Um, You know, there are a number of startups working on direct air capture. Um, So those are basically giant fans that blow ambient air over um, some kind of solution that will then pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And then they usually inject it underground for storage. Um, There are companies that are working with minerals that they crush up and spread on farm fields that basically will naturally absorb carbon dioxide over time. Uh, And by crushing it up and spreading it, you'll be able to speed that process uh, known as enhanced rock weathering. Um, And then there's another one that I just covered um, that's making concrete uh, in a different way than we make it today. And that allows it to absorb carbon either both avoid carbon dioxide in its manufacture and absorb it over time. So I think those are kind of cool. The other thing that I think is has been interesting lately is it's not really a, a trend in the carbon market, but thinking about how we can encourage decarbonization investments um, not just in developed world, developed countries but in um, the developing world as well. Um, you know it's becoming easier now to finance clean energy projects through kind of more traditional debt financing and I think countries are realizing that if they can take the private capital markets and couple it maybe with uh, public incentives or grants, that that could kind of help developing countries take that extra step to kind of kiss fossil fuels goodbye, right? They've got a lot invested right now in their current generation infrastructure. Um, And really, all, all that's holding them back is that initial capital investment, to replace those. That's not always the case, but in many cases, that's what it is, because once they're able to do that, uh, the ongoing costs of running that uh, new you know, clean energy infrastructure are lower than their existing fossil fuel ones. So in some ways it can make a lot more sense. Um, so again, not really a traditional carbon market, but I think we're starting to see some interesting ways of using uh, capital markets to encourage decarbonization.
1: We mentioned at the top uh, your involvement with Future Proof, and I'm wondering, what advice would you give to a founder looking to build a media company and brand in 2023? Or maybe another way to look at this would be, what do you know now that you wish you knew previously uh, in thinking about building a media company and brand uh, in 2023? Yeah, that's a
2: good question. I think the biggest thing is to think about the diversity of your income streams. Um, you know, when I launched Future Proof, I was really interested in the, um, you know, basically like, how can I get affiliate income? Uh, that was all the rage for a while. Um, you know, there were entire publications started and sold off based on that premise. Um, and it seemed somewhat promising um, around the time that I actually got around to launching it memberships started taking off um, and a lot of people went whole hogging into memberships. And... I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of those. I think they're all beneficial, but I think the key is that you have to have a diversified income stream. You can't just do affiliate income, you can't just do memberships, you can't just do advertising. I think we're seeing today a lot of uh, companies that are dependent on advertising income are you know, going through rounds and rounds of layoffs. Um, and ideally, if you have that diversified income stream, you're maybe not taking as much of a hit. Um, you know, The events business obviously took a hit during the pandemic, Um, but if you have some other legs to stand on, that certainly helps. And so thinking about, uh, diversification, diversification in income is, is definitely one of them. Um, and then I'll say on the climate side, if you're interested in that, I would think, you know, very seriously about like, you know, it's the Wayne Gretzky Gretzky quote, right? Think to where the puck is headed, skate to where the puck's going. Um, and that's what you want to do. We don't want to necessarily focus on the technologies that are happening today, but those that are likely to happen in a few years, um. Calling that right is tricky, of course, but if you can do it, uh, you know, you're gonna have an audience that's gonna trust in your judgment.
1: So, you know, the world that you and I live in, we talk a lot about what's happening, you know, from startups and coming out of Silicon Valley, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on the Inflation Reduction Act and the impact that it can have on climate tech companies.
2: Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act, I think has been really transformative from all of the founders I've spoken with. Um, you know, a lot of people like to say they they don't found companies, they don't invest in companies that are dependent on government regulation or laws, uh, things like that. But the reality is that we all live in a regulatory environment, right? The world has laws and we all follow them. And that creates opportunities and challenges in different places. And when the law changes, those opportunities and challenges shift. Uh, And it's no question that the inflation reduction has shifted those. Um, You know, we've seen tens of billions of dollars invested in battery uh, manufacturing infrastructure in the U.S., for example, uh, in the last nine months since it's passed or so. Um, And I think we're going to see even more of that. Uh, You know, it's also kind of revitalized the automotive manufacturing industry in this country. Um, But then even less obvious things. uh, Heat pumps have gotten a big bump. From that, you know, I'm walking around my house, I see companies that used to install new oil burner furnaces in people's homes are now starting to put out little signs when they're doing work, uh, advertising ductless heat pumps uh, for people's homes. And so that kind of shift, I think, is going to be felt uh, not just in the startup world, but throughout the economy. But of course, it is, you know, startup companies are looking for those new opportunities. And so you're starting to see that as well. Right. Right. there's a number of new companies focused on uh, heat pumps, both manufacturing them themselves or creating software around managing them. Um, same with uh, home battery backups. Again, hardware and software around managing that and creating both backups for the homes and backup for the grid. Um, and so I think as the law starts to take into effect, you know. As we get further along and the regulations get written around that law, I think you're going to start to see more opportunities for either ways to transform the grid, uh, developing electric vehicle infrastructure, or thinking about opportunities for decarbonization in homes, commercial spaces, and even industrial uses.
1: Interesting. Well, you know, this is a, a really great conversation that we're having, uh, Tim. And I loved hearing about punctuated equilibrium and what's going on in, in the fusion uh, area. Um, as we wrap it up here, anything else that you're working on right now uh, that you want to maybe give us a little sneak preview of or, or anything you're looking forward to the second half of this year?
2: Yeah, a couple of things. Um, one of which is, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, what are the roles for um basically non-white men founders in the climate tech space um unfortunately you know the sector does tend to track very similarly to other um sectors that venture capital invests in um, and so working on a story right now thinking about uh you know well first examining the data which as i said is, is not great um and then trying to find uh places where uh black uh you know Latino and Latina and invest, uh, investors and founders are diving in and same with female founders and investors. Because um, I think, you know, everybody brings a unique perspective to it. And uh, especially something like climate tech, which has a very broad remit um, and is tackling probably the largest problem of our time. Um, you know, we're going to need all the different perspectives uh, that we can get uh, to focus on this. Um, and then the other thing I'm working on is just kind of like thinking broadly about 2023. um, You know, there was a lot of talk about the downturn in the last six months to a year, uh, and we're seeing a bit of that in climate tech. But given, again, the enormity of the problem, the fact that it's not going away, and then also some of the regulatory and policy changes that we've seen, um, I think the second half of the year is probably going to look a little bit differently. So I'm going to
0: explore that a little bit more.
1: All right, Tim Vichon, senior climate reporter at TechCrunch. Thank you so much for joining us on CLIMB today.
0: Thank you, Rick. Well, that's all for this week's episode of CLIMB by VSC. Thank you so much for watching and listening. Special thanks to Credo for their help in producing and promoting this episode. To visit any part of today's conversation again, you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com. Our thanks to Josue Romero for posting these every week. Lastly, if you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out. And as far as I know, it's still carbon neutral. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you all next week on Climb by VSC.